0: Good morning, New Life. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Prez, and we are in the middle uh, of a series looking at our vision statement as well as our four core values, and we do this in the beginning of our ministry year in order to remind the church and ourselves about why our church exists and what are the particular characteristics, gospel virtues, that we naturally gravitate towards, celebrate, that drive the heartbeat, and the decisions of this church. And so today we're going to look at our second core value, which is counseling and community. And I'm going to be reading from a well-known passage in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. And so if you are able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Pray that your hearts and minds will be open, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I'll start with verse 1 and read to the end of verse 7. This is God's Word. And the Lord sent Nathan to David... Who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And this is God's word. You could take your seats. <clears throat> well, we're continuing along in our series on the core values. And again, one of the reasons we do this is to bring clarity to why our church exists, informed by the Bible, led by the Spirit, and to understand what are our particular values that we naturally gravitate towards. And last week, we looked at this core value called Reformed in Theology, which is essentially a biblical truth that's a foundation and establishes our culture and is really the life of this church. But we want to be able to outline a little bit more the contours of our culture, which is our second core value, counseling and community. And we're going to look at counseling and community because one of the truths about biblical Christianity is that if our vision is to make disciples in Orange County, what's going to be essential towards discipleship is that every member should be involved in some virtue or some version of community. Spirit-filled, vulnerable, other-centered, gospel-saturated community because that is exactly the way that God has defined life, that you can be open with your brokenness and your hurt that somebody else could be open with their brokenness and hurt, and together you limp along in this journey called life, looking to the cross of Jesus, asking God to really speak truth into your life. And counseling in a community is a very particular and specific biblical way to do this. And when you look at Second Samuel chapter 12, we have this famous story. and In fact, it's actually one of my favorite stories because Nathan, this prophet, goes up to this king to reveal to King David one of his deepest and harshest sins in his life, and in fact, actually one of the deepest sins of anybody's life. And Nathan has to do this to a powerful king. And we look at how Nathan's able to do this. He's so loving, so winsome, so thoughtful. He's so good with people. And he tells this story, but the story is really a metaphor for the life of David in order to bring clarity and conviction to David's sin so that he could have life-changing repentance. And that's really the picture of counseling and community. And so when we look at this passage to bring out this core value, we're going to look at it from three different perspectives. One, kind of launching off on this passage, we're going to consider what exactly is counseling and community? Why are those two words together? What is counseling and why is community so needed? So we're going to define it, we'll look at the definition of it, simply ask the answer to the question, what is counseling and community and why is it one of our core values? Secondly we'll go into the method of this, what should it look like? You no, know, how should it be applied in the church? And then thirdly, what is the end goal or the fruit? So we'll define it, we'll describe the method of it, and then we'll show you the goal and the fruit of it. So let's look at this together. Let's consider you and I, what is counseling in community? Now, the counseling community is basically two things. Speaking truth in love and somebody being able to do this for you. So you need truth and love, which is based all throughout the Bible, especially in Ephesians, speaking truth and love, but also somebody that's going to do it. Who's going to be that friend? Who's going to love you enough to take the gloves off, so to speak, to lay into you in a gentle, winsome way, just like Nathan does to David? That's essentially counseling and community. It's bringing biblical truth in the context of the church so that you can change and be more like Jesus. It's biblical truth that's spoken with such love and winsomeness and wisdom that brings back the primacy of Scripture, the truth of the Bible, to be able to saturate your life, to interpret your life, to convict your life. And that's why this counseling in community core Valley flows out of our first one, which is Reformed in Theology, because Reformed in Theology places as the authority the Bible over our lives to help us understand faith and life. And to know biblical truth, to know the Bible, that is the basis for your life and for your faith, you need to have the Bible spoken into you with love that could help you to understand people, to help you understand your problems, your influences, your idolatry, your emotions, the, why, the reasons you suffer, how you can actually change. All of these aspects of life, we believe, can be spoken into your life through Scripture, and that's essentially what counseling and community is. The ultimate goal has to be with lasting growth and change. Paul Tripp, a counselor, we read his books here at this church, he has his own ministry, but he used to be a counselor and a faculty member of CCF, and this is how he describes counseling and community. He basically says, as I paraphrase, it's about personal growth and change. It's the second half of the Great Commission you know the second half of the Great Commission, teaching them all that I have commanded? And that's what counseling community is about, to teach you all that Jesus has commanded so you can change and be more like Him. It teaches people to practically live as followers of Christ in the way we think, in understanding our identity, understanding and addressing our problems, in the way we serve each other, in the way that we relate to society and to God. This can play out in official ministries of the church, but also comes out in everyday interactions that take place in the hallways of the school, in the family rooms of our homes, the minivans of our everyday life, driving the kids around to their activities. In other words, friends, as followers of Jesus, we are being transformed and called to be agents of transformation, both formally and informally. And counseling community, according to CCF, basically takes this lofty and heavenly theology and brings it down to the street level of everyday life. The goal of counseling community is to have community and truth spoken so that at the end of the day, you and I can grow into change to be more like Jesus Christ. And that's what discipleship is essentially about. Friends, that word counseling, just to kind of clarify, as we define counseling community, it carries a lot of baggage, and we oftentimes think of counseling as formal counseling with a therapist or psychiatrist or psychologist or scheduling a meeting through our counseling center here at church, or meeting with a pastor to get formal counseling one hour a week, week in and week out. And that's definitely true. That's part of it. But when you think about counseling in community, what I want to try to convey to you is the idea that counseling is both broad and also narrow. The narrow sense is formal counseling. You need professional counseling to deal with some of the baggage that you have in your life, I need professional counseling to deal with baggage in my life. So even when I went on my sabbaticals for two times in a year, uh, twice in two different years, I intentionally got a sabbatical plan to seek counseling, both therapy with an MFT, but also a biblical counselor that I met with to deal with all the baggage inside of my heart and my life. And that's basically what counseling is. It's not just formal counseling, but it's also big. Did you know, in fact, that if you have the ability to talk, which every human being does made in the image of God, you automatically, in the biggest picture, are counseling one another. Even if you're in youth group and your friends, you're telling your friends what to do, who to date, what makes you popular, what are your priorities, what's cool, you're counseling 24-7. See, friend, the issue is not whether you get counseling or not. The issue is what kind of counseling are you getting? And did you know that among the younger people of our church, the number one counselor that really influences and shapes our worldview is going to be social media. So it's not really a question if you're getting counseling. Everyone's informing you. Everyone's talking about you. The social world is telling you how you should think and feel and live and how you think about the major issues of your life. Everyone's getting shaped by counseling. That's how we are created as human beings. But the goal for our core values is to say we want you to have biblical, reformed, gospel-centered, spirit-filled counseling to help you understand school and friendships and marriage and work and money and your pain, and your hurt, and your parenting, and your children. That counseling has this broad picture that everyone is involved with. It's in its most general sense, counseling is advice or instruction. And that means every time you talk, every time you speak a word, there's a counseling going on. You impact influence people around you, and they influence you with their words. There's no neutral ground. Did you know, in fact, that the first counselor in the history of humanity is God himself. He spoke the world into existence. And then he counsels. He talks to Adam and Eve. And back in Genesis, he says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And then verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have this counsel that comes from God. It's good counsel. It's biblical counsel. It's counsel that'll give you life. But they didn't follow this, and they listened to the counsel of their own hearts and then this other creature comes in in the form of a snake. He's Satan, and then he offers a counter-counsel. He says, did God really say don't eat of that fruit? And he starts inserting these temptations and these ideology that is countercultural and that's not according to a biblical worldview. And now you have a war of different counseling sources. And our goal counseling in community is to give you a biblical God-centered counsel that God speaks into this world. And this dynamic is exactly played out in our passage. There's truth and there's change. Nathan speaks biblical truth so King David can change in all his ways. Now, if you didn't know the story of David and Bathsheba, that's okay. It's a famous story. Even non-Christians, these liter- literary artists, they love the story of David and Bathsheba. But the sin of David is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And then chapter 12 shows how there's counseling in the community. But it's actually describing Davidson in chapter 11 and all his scheming, all his manipulation. You know, he basically goes up onto his roof. David is this big and fancy and powerful king. He looks across and sees this beautiful woman, and he lusts after her. He wants her. And so he calls, tells his, his entourage, go bring her to me. And then he commits adultery, sends her back, and then she becomes pregnant. And then he's thinking, what am I going to do about this? And then he says, well, Bathsheba... The woman he committed adultery with, his, his, her, wife, his, her husband is Uriah the Hittite. So David concocts this crazy manipulative plan. And he says to his messenger, Joab, go tell Uriah to come to me. And he says, Uriah, take a break from the war. Go spend a night with your wife. So then it makes it look like that the baby is actually from them but he doesn't do this. And so then King David says, why didn't you go down to your wife? And Uriah says, I can't do that because my army and my messengers, my men are out there on the battlefield. How can I go home and eat and drink and live in the comforts of my home? I can't do that. That's why Uriah, he was such a great, he was such a great general. He was such a great leader. So then David concocts his plan. And he says Oh, to Joab, send a message to Uriah, Bring him and his army to the fiercest part of the land, where there's going to be the most dangerous war, so that he could be left there to die, and that's exactly what happens. And Uriah passes away, and David does all this also that he could have what he wants. It was deception, it was spiritual abuse, power abuse, it was adultery, and it was a manipulation. And the reason we know that is so bad is because in chapter 11, verse 11, it says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And this is why counseling and community is so important. How do you know that your life is displeasing? Is it a good life or a bad life? Well, for a Christian, what we're saying is that the way you know you have a good life or a bad life, a pleasing life or a displeasing life, is because it's set by the standard of outside of you, that it displeases the Lord. So he doesn't say there that David, what he did displeased his friends. It didn't say what David did displeased his own heart. Because his heart was seared. He was, he was so dead to his own sin. It didn't say that what David did was displeasing social media or what the culture says or what the government says. Because that's how you actually veer into a relativistic culture. There's this objective standard that says the, what determines how you should live, how you should think, what should be your morality, what should be your ultimate goals, how you think about marriage, how you think about murder and friendship. Everything of life is determined by what God has said as revealed to us in Scripture. It displeased the Lord. It's an objective standard. Otherwise, you go into what Disney does so good. Well, it's like you want to know what pleases, makes a good life and pleases you? Follow your heart. But that doesn't work because what if people follow the heart and they want to bully other people or manipulate other people or abuse other people? Now, Hitler and Stalin, these people, they followed their heart. They thought they were doing the best of what they could in the world. You know where you see this even in Hollywood? In Avengers. <laughs> Now, Thanos, well, he was trying to kill half the world because he thought he wanted to bring equilibrium into the world. What was he doing? He was following his heart. So, if you can't do that, that's not the way that you want to live life. So, counseling and community brings this biblical truth that the Lord uses people like Nathan to speak truth into people like David because God determines actually what is right and wrong and what is life. And that's what happens in this story. David was in sin. The commentators know that he broke every one of the Ten Commandments in chapter 11. And then what does God do? He pursues David with grace by sending Nathan. Because in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And friends, we say God's grace comes to us and pursues us. We say God is gracious, but one of the ways that God pursues us, one of the ways that we know God is gracious, one of the clearest ways is because he sends different people into our lives to give us hard truth. In chapter 11, David dominates the chapter. He's in control. He's the main actor. But in chapter 12, God in his word dominates the chapter. Nathan was sent by God. And that word sent there was used 12 times in chapter 11. David sends, Bathsheba sends, Joab sends, now God sends. He moves into action. He sends Nathan as a version of his grace to pursue people like David who are in their sin. God changes us, friends, through community and through biblical counsel for people to speak truth. And when you're in your darkest moments, in your deepest sins, when you're in your worst moment of your life, God's grace pursues you by sending people to speak truth into your life. Because, As one author has said, God's something for your nothing when we don't deserve anything is essentially the definition of God's grace. And that's why we hold to this, that we understand and try to strive for what pleases God, and God will use community and biblical truth to change and transform us. But secondly, here's how we do it. Here's what the method looks like. You don't have to do exactly like Nathan. He's particularly gifted. But Nathan comes to David, and he tells a story. This is his counseling method to show David his sin so that David can repent and turn to God. And he tells this story to really relate to David and Bathsheba. And he says to David, there's a rich man, there's a poor man. The rich man has many flocks and herds, and the poor man has one little lamb. The traveler comes by, and then in their custom, then when a traveler comes by, you cook a meal, let them sleep. But this rich man was so cheap that he didn't want to use one of his many flocks or herd, so he steals the one lamb, but the poor guy kills the lamb, cooks it up, and gives it for a meal. Now, when you look at the way this sort of passage is described, you can tell the emphasis on this. There's one line for the rich man in the chapter and four lines to describe the poor man. There's much more color and much more personality to the poor man, the victim, which is Uriah. The poor man in some ways had more than the rich man when you look at biblical categories because the poor man had family, he had a of home, the rich man just had money. The land for the poor man wasn't just his livestock, but it was a metaphor for family, It was more than food. It was more than money because this lamb for the poor man grew up with a family. They slept with him. They, They fed him. It grew up with his children. The rich man had a guest and he only had money, but he didn't have a home and he didn't have people. Just as the rich man took the lamb and used it for selfish reasons, David used Bathsheba and took a woman for his selfish reasons. And this is after the story, David sort of gets... Fired up, and his response comes to us in verses five to six. This is what David says. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, "As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity." And that's David's response. Okay, let's look at this. Here's how you are called, just on a surface level, of how you can be part of God's plan to bring change in community. The first thing we see about Nathan is that he lives by the agenda of someone else. It's not personal preference. It's not comfort. Nathan comes with the agenda of God himself, and God's agenda is to bring everlasting growth and change into people's lives, repentance. See, many of us, when we speak truth into people's lives, sometimes we do it out of anger. Sometimes we do it out of selfish manipulation. Sometimes we do it out of revenge. When we speak truth, we do it out of gossip. We do it out of jealousy. But Nathan comes... And he speaks truth that's other-centered, is gentle, is contextualized, it's winsome. His method is to take a message, a biblical truth, and make it the most palatable for someone who's probably not going to receive this. Nathan doesn't come to condemn David. Nathan comes and he persuades to convert David. Nathan doesn't come to punish David. He comes to persuade him. See, Nathan has another agenda to bring a sinner to repentance. So Nathan comes not to tear down David. Nathan comes to turn back David to God, and God uses people to change other people because David was so blind to his sin, so the only way that David was going to be revealed of his sin was if God sent Nathan to winsomely speak this story to bring truth into David's life so that he could bring him back to repentance. Friends, you and I have all kinds of blind spots in our spiritual lives. And one of the ways that God designed for you to come to everlasting change and growth is to send a Nathan into your life to speak truth into your life so that you could see the clar- with clarity the sin in your life and then repent of your sins. That's just how God designed it. Yeah, sometimes you read the Bible directly and the Spirit of God and the truth of God's Word will convict you. But oftentimes, he wants to work through the church and community So the one thing that you can recognize here as a practical application is that you're just as blind as David. I'm just as blind as David. There are sins in your life that you have no idea that you are living by. You're either self-righteous, you love money too much, you idolize your kids, you idolize your parents' approval, you're abrasive with your language, you want power, you manipulate people. David actually, see, this one commentator, Robert Alter, once said about David, now he was a righteous man and he was a good man, but it seems that when he manipulated and killed Uriah and slept with Bathsheba, that was out of character. But he actually says, no, you see, when you read the story of David, a slow change in David. Power changes people. Manipulation changes people. Politics changes people. And the only reason that David finally came to the realization of his sin is because there's a Nathan that came into his life. So one of the things about the method of counseling community is to think about this for a moment. I'm blind to my sins. I'm not nearly as clear on myself as i like to be. I don't have a 360 understanding of myself. And you need people in this church to speak truth into your life because you have blindness in your life. That's just the reality of it. I have blindness in my life. People speak into my life, and I don't like to hear it. It's hard. I disagree. I argue back. I try to put on my lawyer hat so that I could try to change the parameters of the games. Yeah, we're not very teachable. But if you want everlasting change and growth, realize that you're blind just like David, and God will send Nathan's into your life to speak into your life and to change you. God uses people to change other people. And so that's why one thing we see about the method of counseling community is that there's a different agenda. It's a holiness agenda. It's a repentance agenda. It's a restoration agenda. It's not a manipulation agenda. It's not a comfort agenda. No one likes to have hard truth like Nathan. I mean, do you really think Nathan wanted to talk to a king, to go up to a king and rebuke the king, the man who is in power? He had incredible bravery, but he also had incredible love. That's what Nathan had, and we can do this too by the gospel of Jesus, we need to know the truth, but we need to couch it in love. See, some of you, <clears throat> we tend to sort of sway to one side or the other. You know, I use this even in you know the story about Barnabas, but it's like Nathan too. He had the perfect balance of truth and love. He had the biblical agenda of God. Nate said to David, "You're in deep sin," but he also had love—love love for God and love for David. You and I were not like that. You know, sometimes we're like David. We have blindness to our sins. There's all kinds of sins, and we need a Nathan to come in. But the Nathans in our church and myself, we say to one side or the other, either we're too much love, and that's actually just selfishness because we want our comfort, we don't want rejection from friends, it's hard to speak truth in someone's life. So oftentimes we just kind of cower back and don't say anything. The other side of us, we kind of tend towards being too much in truth, We're like a drill sergeant in the sense that we love criticizing. We love speaking truth into people's lives. We love to condemn them and criticize them and self-righteously tell them that they're wrong. But Nathan shows us that in the gospel, there's this truth in love, this balance, that he's loving enough to speak truth, but he also is loving enough to say that truth. And that guides him and that leads him. It's winsome and it's other-centered. See, David's biggest problem, if you know David's story, is that he lost a battle with Goliath Um, He won the battle against Goliath, but he lost the battle against Bathsheba. And this story of grace where God pursues David with grace through the person of Nathan tells us that grace just isn't amazing, but grace is also very smart because Nathan is winsome in the way that he brings out this biblical truth of David's life. Just as a side note before we go to our last point about the fruit of this, You know, the reason that we believe in counseling and community is a specific reformed expression of what our partner in our counseling ministry, CCF, believes in. And there's a couple of things that CCF wants to do. There's basically two things that CCF really strives to accomplish, and we partner with them in this effort. The first thing is that they want to restore Christ back to counseling. And they say that they have a passion for personal change that is centered in the person of Christ. And this passion is our heritage and heartbeat. And it leads us to constantly revisit the question, how do the riches of the gospel impact my life and my efforts to help others? So they want to bring Christ back to counseling, but their second thing they want to do is to bring counseling back to the church. They restore counseling to the church, and they say we believe that the body of Christ is God's primary context for change, the community God uses to transform people. CCF's mission is to equip the church to be this kind of transforming community, We see ourselves as an extension of the local church, and we want to serve and promote its ministry. And we see this with David and Nathan, and that's why we strive to be like this as well. And this leads us quickly to our last point. We saw the definition of this. We saw the method of this. It's somebody else's agenda. It's truth and love. But the last thing is that here's our goal. It's repentance that leads to everlasting change. The word of God begins to enter into David's life showing the reality of his sin. Now, one of the questions he asks about this is that why did Nathan have to use the story? And the reason is because I think it was the best way to bring, in a loving, other-centered way, David back to repentance. If you think about this, even in David's response in verses 5 to 6, he was so angry and he overreacted. He says, the rich man who stole the young lamb It's a capital offense. He needs to die. But nowhere in the Old Testament, even today, even if he's still a lamb, you never are really calling on capital punishment. So he's overreacting. And some of the commentators say the reason David's so angry and the reason he's overreacting is because without even him knowing it, he's sensing the gravity of his own sin of what he's done with Uriah and Bathsheba. He's beginning to recognize the deception of his sin, the depth of his sin, the atrocity of his sin. And the reason the Lord is beginning to bring light to David is because Nathan loved him and tells him this story. That's why Nathan didn't just go in and say, King David, you are the worst absolute king ever. How could you murder Uriah? How could you sleep with Bathsheba? He doesn't do it that way. And sometimes you got to do that. No wisdom will dictate. Sometimes you got to do that. But Nathan, he does it differently because he wants to be winsome to bring David to clarity and conviction of his own sins. It's the only way that David could see his sins. As I said this, some of our deepest sins, friends, we're blind to. You never really know that you're in sin or that you're sinning until someone like a Nathan comes into your life to reveal it. Sometimes sin never really feels like sin. I mean, look at David, and you're sort of reading into the text. David, when he sent for Bathsheba, wasn't probably thinking he was sinning. He was probably thinking, I'm just a lover. When David sent Uriah and Joab into the harshest part of the battlefield, David probably wasn't thinking, I'm being a manipulator, I'm a sinner. He's probably thinking, I'm just being a general, and i got to call the shot, and I could send the war people out in the strategically the way that I want. But he's never really owning up to his sin. He's like, I'm a lover, I'm somebody who appreciates beauty, and I'm also a general somebody who appreciates power. But it took this story to bring about the fruit and the goal of Nathan's agenda, which is actual biblical truth and change. That's why you and I often are like this. How will you ever figure out your sin? How will you ever have life-changing repentance that you can really be conformed to Jesus? How will you ever do this? This passage, this answer, is saying through radical community. Now, I've had thousands. I don't think I'm exaggerating. I've probably had thousands of conversations that are trying to bring truth and love. I'll be honest, it's both sides are hard to receive it and also to give it is harder. But just to put this out there, I think I'm better at giving it than actually receiving it. And so there's lessons on both sides. But when you look at characters of the Bible, I'm going to guess that the most rare, but also the most precious friend that you need is a Nathan. I mean, how many friends do you really have? I'm not talking about friends that you do life with that never actually speak into your life about the idols of your life, the use of your time, the subtle nuances that only a true friend knows that, hey, you like money a little bit too much. You like power a little bit too much. You're not really a good friend. You gossip a little bit more because I hear this through the church. They never go to the other person. It usually goes through leadership, and it's hard. I get it. But part of the change of the church is, say, if you love that person enough, you got to speak truth and love. It's not just the pastor's job or the elder's job or the CG leader's job. You really have to be able to speak to this because the only way that you're going to have everlasting change like David did is through radical friendship and community. Nathans are the most rare of all friends, I think, in the Bible. Because you could go and be like a friend like these guys. I don't even know how to pronounce their name. Janus and Janbrez. These are magicians that were part of Pharaoh. They're the opposition of Moses. There's not much about them, but when I look at them and I read about them, these two magicians, they just seem like people pleasers. They're never going to speak up to Pharaoh. They're yes men. They'll just say everything that Pharaoh wants to hear. They'll do everything that Pharaoh says. They're yes men. They're cowards. But on the other hand, you can have friends like Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are the guys that, yeah, they cried with Job, but then they ridiculed him, they, pun- they punished him, they criticized him and said, Job, the reason that you're suffering is because you did something wrong. They were self-righteous. And usually those are the two types of friends that we have, but Nathans, they're, they're rare. Nathans are hard to find. So this message speaks to all of us. We're like David, where we don't want to hear about our sins. And I've done it plenty of times and I gently bring up an idea. It gets rejected left and right. But it's also we could resonate with being a Nathan that we're called to be a Nathan as well. Not just somebody who's a people pleaser or somebody who's just a critical, self-righteous person. David's reminded of God's grace. Everything he has is from God, and he realizes this really through the picture of the story that Nathan brought to David, and that's why he's brought to repentance. In verse seven to eight, we realize that God gave David everything. I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you a house. And then verses 8 to 13 is a detailed description of David's sin. But the fruit of all this is really captured in a psalm, chapter 51. David writes this psalm 51, and it's a psalm of repentance. Everything in that psalm is about David coming to restoration from how he manipulated and murdered Uriah and committed adultery and lust with Bathsheba. In verses 1 to 2, he's pleading for mercy in psalm 51. David says, have mercy on me, wash me thoroughly, and then towards the end of the psalm, he's full of confidence and joy. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. David changed. Now, this psalm is where we get that old school song. It says, "Created me a clean heart. He wants restoration. He wants a clean heart. He's asking God to forgive him. He's asking God to wipe away the guilt. And all of that happens in David's life because of Nathan, who speaks truth in love and says, you can have that restoration when you look To the true and better king of jesus christ jesus who shed his blood for you jesus who will restore you jesus who will heal you jesus who resurrected and unite sinners like you and me to him but when he says i unite you to myself he says i unite you to my body so now you are part of this community in which you are speaking truth and love to one another jesus is a righteous and perfect king jesus never murdered or manipulated but he was murdered himself Jesus never took another woman out of lust for his own physical pleasure, but he took sinners like you and me and made us his beautiful wife. And David was able to make that turn, to make that change. He pleads for mercy, but then at the end of the psalm, he sings God's praises because he experienced repentance and everlasting change. It shows us that we don't just need a system of salvation, but we need the Savior of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. And tell friends that we have this culture in which we love people enough to be a Nathan in their lives. And if we ourselves also need to be humble enough to realize we need Nathans in our lives, our church and you will never grow to be as gospel-centered and Christ-like in your life. Unless you're finally open, both on the David side but also on the Nathan side, that pushes us in our union with Jesus to be humble and teachable in repentance and to love one another so that we could be a conduit of truth and love to somebody else's life in this church. And that is our second core value. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the life that you have given us in your Son. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us And help us, Lord, in this messiness called community that we will be able to speak truth and love to one another, that we love each other enough to do this, and that we be humble enough to be able to receive it as well. So, Lord, I pray that our church, New Life Press, will continue to grow in the image and the unity and maturity of Jesus Christ by the gospel truth flowing out to and from one another in this community that is life-giving and truthful and vulnerable. And we pray slowly we could continue to grow and mature in that way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.